Welcome to Global Talks by Paw of Life, a podcast about redefining healthcare through a global perspective, allowing you to become informed and involved. In each episode, we deliver the best hard-hitting analysis and discussion of what is currently impacting the healthcare landscape with guests from a variety of industries. Now, here's your host, Pavan Lohia. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Global Talks by Pav Live. Today, my guest is the Associate Professor of Media Marketing and Communication at the City University of New York Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy, Dr. Chris Palmato. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Palmato. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. It's a, it's a great day weather-wise, but the summer is coming to a close. That's great to hear. So jumping right in, I know there's been a lot of conversation around COVID-19, just nationally and internationally, but more specifically, I've heard a lot of feedback about people not really having a clear sense of information around the virus itself, the dangers to the community and to themselves. So as somebody who's in communications, I kind of wanted to know, how have you felt here in the United States, how we've gone about COVID-19 information. Yeah, from a communications perspective, one of the biggest issues I've seen, I think everyone else has seen it, is the COVID-related misinformation and conflicting information that's being disseminated all the time. So when I say misinformation, I'm referring to absolutely false information being spread. And we know about, we can think of some examples about that, some of the treatments um, and some of the concerns people have, just the the completely false information that people have been propagating. But then there's also conflicting information. And that's also something that's really important to consider. I'm talking about the gray areas where different and even opposing views can be legitimately had, right? Right. There's research and studies which shift what we already thought we knew. So that's things like the role of masks and the effectiveness of masks. I mean, research is coming out every day, just how effective they are, what they can do, what they can't do, the role of distancing, how far apart is most effective, the length of time that a, the virus can live on services. These are all areas where research is continuing to help us learn about this. So this isn't really misinformation. This is just evolving information. Um, and then there's like conflicting information about things like returning to school. So you've got some people on one side saying we can't return to school safely and others on other sides, very legitimate actors too. I'm talking about like the American Association of Pediatric Physicians, you know, was counseling that we should return to school, that, re- that school should be made available for kids for many, many reasons. And so that's really difficult to navigate. It's difficult enough, <laughs> but it's easier to navigate false information and misinformation But what's really hard to navigate is where you've got legitimate discrepancies about the right way to approach things. I think, especially now as states begin to reopen, I know if you look back to March, you know, we had a national message, the White House, things were not so serious. They were going to squash out whatever cases they were. Obviously, over the past several months, we saw that to not be the case. Places like New York, where you and I have been, were especially hard hit. But now as things kind of reopen and certain parts of the state, state still remain so impacted, do you think it really impacted the perception of the disease severity? So, I mean, looking at places like Florida or across the Midwest or even southern U.S. where cases are still surging, 
have we kind of failed that messaging or core message, whether it's state leaders or federal leaders? Well, of course we have. I mean, if, if you look back, when we look back, or as we look back on all the ways we've communicated this virus, we'll, we'll see many, many opportunities for very interesting analyses. And just to name two sort of domains, one is the political domain that you referred to. And so that is a very interesting domain to look at. So you've got the federal response. You've even got disagreements within the federal government, right? So you'll hear Fauci and, and Trump sort of sparring a little bit about what's right or what's wrong, right. then you've got 50 different governors and they all have a different approach. And then you've got thousands and thousands of mayors and they're all trying to stake their claim. And you've got conflicts between, say, the mayor of New York City and Cuomo, the governor of New York. And I've heard of mayors, if I'm not mistaken, I can't remember which one, saying things like masks are prohibited. You know, like we, I won't even allow people to wear masks. Right. Oh, that was the Florida sheriff. Uh, Florida uh, sheriff. Right. So, so right. stuff like that. So just the political in and of itself, just the political analysis is so complex and, and interesting and disconcerting and concerning. But you've also got the a new environment in which we receive our information. So if you look at the history of media and how we received our information, 30, 40, 50 years ago, you had about three to five major sources of media. You had three networks, you had a you know, couple of major newspapers and some different syndicated news, you know, AP, right. whatever, right? And then some key newspapers that syndicated in the, in the, in the themselves. So something like the New York Times, articles that appeared in the New York Times would also be reprinted in newspapers all over the country. And that's how people got their news. They got it from newspapers and they got it from TV for the most part, right? And now flash forward to today and you've got, first of all, you've got so many more networks. So you've got, Absolutely. You, you could look at Fox and then change one channel over to MSNBC or CNN and you're getting right. opposite perspectives, you know, completely opposite views about who's right, who's wrong, who's a villain, who's a hero. But then on top of that, with social media, you've got a very, very long tail of sources. When I talk about the tail, I'm talking about this sort of big bump in the beginning, years ago, decades ago, where there was just a big lump of information, right. uh, you know, only a few that the number of people that were reached was so big. And the, by the biggest one, the number of people reached by the next one was really big. And then after you got to a few of these big ones, it just dropped down to like, very little. Now, what we, we say there's this long tail. In other words, all the different news sources, all the different channels, then you've got all the different bloggers and people with their own YouTube channels, for example, right. people broadcasting on Twitch, people broadcasting on DLive or whatever that right. have 1,000, 5,000, 20,000 listeners. And so this long tail of information makes it so difficult to get a handle on where the news is coming from, where people are getting the news. And it really gets difficult to manage it. So you got social media, media channels like Facebook and Twitter, all this controversy about who they ban, who they take off. They take somebody off Twitter. Facebook removes someone from Facebook because right. they may be a QAnon or something like that. But then they go on Twitch and they still have as many followers. And so we're not then following. We're not really, we're not necessarily knowing what people are saying because we've sort of removed them from the, the more legitimate platforms which makes right. them go sort of underground, which I think had a lot to do with Trump being elected in 2016 as a surprise, right? Everyone was surprised on election morning. Absolutely. Well, it wasn't a surprise to people that were listening to these broadcasters on all these different sources. So 
it's really a challenge now, but it's really important that we sort of develop media literacy around what's going on. And I think that's my observation is that because we've had so many sources of information through all these different channels, uh, it, it's really, really hard to know who's right and who's wrong and what's right and what's wrong. And so I think you bring up a great point because the reason I asked you about this conversation was because I myself struggled with this. I mean, just speaking to people, whether it's my own family, my own friends, to my colleagues at the hospital or at my work, is where are they getting their source of information? You know, where are their beliefs coming from? You know, whether they have a science background or not. And even when I did some digging on the efficacy of scientific reporting or how that information is being reported, I actually found a very difficult time finding any information on that. The only piece I really found was actually from 2016. It was a John Oliver piece on scientific studies and scientific reporting that the media, by and large, kind of has failed the public in reporting this information. And when they do report it, it's not necessarily fact-filled, right? I mean, looking at some of the COVID articles that come out on a daily basis, for example, like the hydroxychloroquine scandal, if you want to call it, they were referring to information in articles, both print and on TV. I guess there was no backtracing to it. Like, hey, where did this study actually come from? Who wrote it? What was the kind of the context behind it? And as a professor, students are held to a certain degree of like when we talk about certain information or use it as an analysis, hey, this was the study and these were the parameters. We don't really get that in face-to-face reporting or what we read. And so I think it kind of impacts both not only the perception, but also even for healthcare workers, I've seen that even their perception of like, well, how bad is it really out there? And if people don't take it seriously, why should we? And so I, I know you had mentioned that there's a new master's program starting at the School of Public Health for health communication. And so for public health workers moving forward, how do they kind of combat making sure that the information that they provide, whether it's in their community or their own circles, that I guess not only is it accurate, but also people believe it. Yeah, well, thank you for mentioning the new program. I'm really excited about our new program. It's a master's of science degree and MS degree in health communication for social change. So what that means is social justice. We have a world where we continue to experience health inequities. And you, of course, know that anyone who's gone through our school knows that. It's something that no student can go through the CUNY School of Public Health, the CUNY Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy, technically. No one can go through that school without getting a good understanding of the inequities that are faced by people in this country and all over the world, by race, ethnicity, economic status, etc. So our program is intended to help build communication leaders, develop communication leaders who are interested in working on that area and make the world a more equitable place health-wise. So I appreciate you mentioning that. And we're, um, <clears throat> we're excited about launching that. So we're going to have our first cohort this fall, the fall of 2020. A big part of that program is gets to this question of what you're talking about, which is just how to communicate, how to understand communications better. So in one case, I guess I would say one answer to your question is what can people do? It's a difficult question. We're all struggling with it. I think one thing we can do is listen. That's one thing we don't do enough. We never have done it as much as <laughs> enough in our society. Yeah. And I appreciate the opportunity to have a nice conversation with you where both of us are listening to each other. But listening is something that I think we're doing in some ways less and less these days. If you listen to people argue about 
these issues, political issues. It's mostly what I tend to hear is people barking their opinion and someone else barking their opinion and they're not listening. Or what you often see on a channel like CNN or Fox or anywhere is people saying the same thing. They agree. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I believe this. Yeah. Oh, and what about this? Yeah. yeah. And they're sort of listening, but they're really just building the one single argument. And that to me is what I generally see in my observation today in today's media is two people arguing, but not really paying each other any mind or two or more people just agreeing. Right. So I think we could do a better job. It's good for all of us to listen and get a sense of a, what are the perspectives that people have? And I think most people have a legitimate perspective. Even if they're misinformed, um, they may, they still, they're coming at it from a legitimate place. I mean, not everybody does. Some people have a design of maliciousness or racism or whatever it is, homophobia or whatever. So, but setting those people aside, I think people often have legitimate underlying reasons for the feelings and the values they have, whether it's distrust of government or whatever, that, that, has someone become, say, less trusting of government programs, that's a legitimate perspective, even though sure. public self relies on government, whatever. So I think listening is really good and important. I think something we don't do as much if we really want to advance. The other thing, though, our program that we're really working on is case studies. And we're going to be doing case studies. We have a whole course of case studies. This is sort of the second year after you've gone through your public health courses. We are mm-hmm. the only accredited school of public health, actually, that offers a fully online health communications master's degree program. So students learn, take all the public health courses, intro to epidemiology, intro to biostatistics, intro to community health, intro to health policy management. Then they take the communications courses. And one of our important courses is a case studies course. And that's based on the Harvard Business School model of case studies where they present sort of a story or a scenario, somebody that faced an issue and where the answers are not necessarily clear cut. And that is a really important form of pedagogy that we don't do all the time where students have to grapple and they debate and they disagree and that allows that they role play and it allows them to sort of get dig into these issues in ways that we do in the real world because in the real world we encounter problems right yeah and we encounter challenges along the way and we often encounter gray areas so i'm really excited about that course and i think again that's another way i think that the intent is to help people see things from other perspectives and help negotiate and develop diplomacy skills. Because in a lot of public health, my partner in the program, uh, Dr. Scott Ratson, he's an MD and he's a distinguished lecturer at the CUNY School of Public Health. He's really interested in advancing this idea of health diplomacy because that's what it is. You've got to be diplomatic. You've got to understand interests and you've got to broker those interests. It's not just about ramming your opinion through, contrary to the way people often operate today. So I think also, even on the just discussing these ideas, when you kind of see the difference of approach, say, I guess, for example, like when China was going through its initial outbreak, they obviously have a lot tighter control on their media, whether it's news media to their social media. And here in the US, we had differing levels. Most recently, there was the issue of video being doctored and being released out and even president and I believe his son as well had shared that information and Twitter and Facebook. They did eventually take it down, but it took after almost reaching five or six million people or viewers. Does that really then kind of hurt? I guess not only does it hurt messaging that health officials are putting out, but 
at what point who's in charge of putting out health information and is it something that I guess even should be openly reported as we kind of allow it now versus kind of making sure or having some regulations in place that limit who can talk or who can release certain information about stuff like this because after COVID or if there's another outbreak, do we want to see the global impact that we've seen so far? There's no way of getting around the fact that you'll always find a channel for your views, no matter who you are, right? So uh, while the New York Times may not publish your op-ed and they, while Twitter may remove your content, you'll right. still be able to make a website on with Squarespace or whatever, and you'll be able to promote your views. So there's no way of getting around that. So that's one thing, but how do we monitor that? I mean, as you're alluding to, some of the big violators of this are the federal government, the executive branch of our federal government. So what do we even do about that? I mean, when they're in, they're in charge of the FCC, et cetera. So that's really challenging. As far as how to communicate, you, you, know, you mentioned your question was loaded and it started with talking about China. China, obviously, there's a whole case study about how they manage or mismanage the, the story and how they the Chinese government is one that tries to control everything. And it was really, really interesting. I started putting together these news stories that I was reading about beginning in February mm -hmm. about recognizing, oh, this is going to be an interesting case study for this whole thing. Not having any idea in February that this was going to turn into what it turned into starting okay. around mid-March, where we all knew what was going on. And then all of us started working from home around mid-March. But before mid-March, it was all about China and how China had suppressed the information. And it was, they were violating some of the fundamental tenets of communication. I mean, the fundamental tenets of communication, 101, basically, is to be forthcoming, right? To right. give as much information as you can, be truthful. Sure, you want to spin it in your way, but you don't want to hold information. You don't want to suppress information. You don't want to punish people who are trying to get it. And that's what exactly what China did in the beginning. And that to me was the case study, right? At those early days in February, mid-February, I was like, wow, this is a really interesting case study. This is exactly, this is going to turn bad because they're not allowing the information to get out. And this was all the, the study we often refer to in communications is the Tylenol scare of, I believe it was the 80s, where there were, someone was poisoning Tylenol in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And the company came out and started acknowledging everything, saying, we don't know what's going on, but we're trying to get the information. The media went to Tylenol, the parent company of Tylenol. I forgot, I think it was Johnson & Johnson, but I could be wrong about that. But they went to the company for the information. Now, when a company says, I'm not going to talk, then they go elsewhere for the information. That's not what you want. You want them to come to you. So China was doing all kinds of stuff to imprisoning yeah. physicians. So the, the contrast to that was Cuomo, I think, who recognized that tenant. And he said, I'm going to go on an all-out communication blitz. And so what did Cuomo do? I mean, he had a communication, he, he had a meeting every single day, every single day at 11. People in New York were tuning in. People in California were tuning in. People yeah. were starting to say Cuomo for president. People all over the world were turning in, right. tuning in. And that is an example of how it should be done. Now, I think Cuomo likes to take credit for everything. And he probably, I believe he deserves a lot less credit than he thinks he should about containing COVID and what all the great successes that New York may or may not have had. But what he did do well, and it showed he got the respect they deserve, was sort of over-communicating about it, you know, giving people more information than they even knew they wanted to know. Right. To the point that they were addicted to seeing him every day. Yeah.
No, I, I definitely think, I mean, I know he'll definitely also have to speak to more recently I've heard his response to putting patients in nursing homes and some of the other missteps he had early on. Absolutely. That's a big know, con- right, contrast. I know definitely people, whether on the funny side with his uh, brothers and him sparring on CNN for every night, to, yeah, his daily press conferences were definitely helpful. But even outside of COVID-19, I think kind of a multi-part question I have or discussion is where do we kind of go moving forward on not only I guess scientific information as a whole how do we kind of look at that but even on very sensitive issues or an issue that impacts so many a good example is the Black Lives Matter movement there's one side that says all these great things about the good and the bad but there's also a side that portrays it in possibly a violent or demonizing the movement itself or certain actors within it I guess what's the step forward for people wanting to get quality information because our media system isn't going to change or freedom of speech is not going to change anytime soon. Well, that's a sick, what we used to be called the $60,000 question, which is now, I guess, the $600 million question. And it's a question that I wish I could answer that question very clearly. And, and wouldn't that be great? I'd just provide the, the right. solution to the whole world communication challenges in one sentence. And I can't come close to doing that. It really is uh, very concerning where we are today, and as you described, because there is no way out. There are organizations and institutions and foundations that are trying to develop solutions to this, that are trying to develop an agenda to mm-hmm. help us build back trust in our media institutions. I mean, obviously, you know, the president is one of the big dismantlers of the major media, right? So he right. at every chance he gets, he will criticize the lamestream media, the failing New York Times or whatever. And that's <laughs> I think in a lot of ways, I think there's, some, there's a reckoning that needed to happen. I do think that there was a lot of hubris and overconfidence and the pretension on the part of the major media, such as the New York Times, the liberal media, you know, the NPR and New York Times, they sort of portrayed right. themselves as the ultimate truth. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they were, you know, didn't have a more liberal leaning ideology. They weren't as forthcoming about. And I think that definitely turned people off. I think they deserve a lot of responsibility for how many people have left them and have and the loss of trust that they're getting. And in yeah. fact, I do believe they deserve a lot of responsibility for the election of Trump in 2016, because they believed they were the, the only way people were getting information. As we learned, clearly they weren't. So I think they need to have a little bit more humility. The mainstream media does. I don't think as evil or as terrible or as corrupt as Trump is portraying them, right. but I do think that they need to understand that they're not the only game, and so they need to build credibility. I mean, I, I love the New York Times. I try to read as much as I can. They do incredible, detailed reporting, great information, but at the same time, there is a distrust. So we've got to somehow figure out ways to build back trust in our journalistic organizations. And you know, I think the CUNY School of Journalism is probably working in that area and so many others. But again, there's entities that are dedicated just to this very same thing, which is helping us build that back. Unfortunately, though, momentum is not in our favor because we're, people are moving away from that and moving more into what we call echo chambers. What we're seeing a lot is these echo chambers. Right. People spending time with people, whether that's in person with them or you know, chat boards or whatever, Absolutely, chat rooms, that agree with each other, where they're all, again, as I was saying earlier, sort of yes, 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 and, yes, and, yes, and, yes, and, yes, and, nothing but the echo chamber. 
Right. Um, and I miss the days of open debate and discussion. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I believe it was William F. Buckley who had a show called Firing Line. I, I think it might even be still a research, a new reboot of it. But, you know, it was where people had very intelligent people on both sides had a very intelligent and thoughtful debate and discussion. And the viewer could leave that discussion maybe with opening his or her mind with new ways of thinking. And we're not seeing that as much anymore. So right. sorry, I couldn't give you a better answer. I, I, no, I'm no, a, I mean, it's a mystic answer to a <laughs> difficult question. It, yeah, it's definitely not only difficult, but I think it's also just the thought of kind of where to go forward. I mean, I struggle with it myself, A, not only finding people who are talking about this type of issue, but also ways forward of improving the situation. I think, I mean, part of the reason I created this podcast and this platform was to kind of tackle some of that information, you know, whether it's giving more credible scientific information to even just having different conversations that are not two, three minute hit pieces on your five o'clock or evening news. And I guess that kind of brings me to the point where I am now, you know, as somebody just started or just as a new public health leader or uh, professional public health, what would be the message to us as, I guess, young purveyors of the field and our own work ethic and our own industry, where to kind of take this matter forward, bring it more to the forefront of the public's mind? Yeah, from, uh, I mean, this conversation is making me realize, I think, that what we need more is our real spaces where we can discuss and sort of Debate might even be too strong a word, but explore, discuss, and explore these issues. And what you're seeing now is people creating opportunities to get their message out there. I mean, I teach a course on helping people advocate for more equitable strategies for health equity. And that is very one-sided. I mean, it's, it's trying to push forward an agenda that is about redistributing our resources to create health equity. But that's not what I'm, what I was just saying. I say what I, what it, rather, that's really about pushing these ideas forward. And everyone wants to do that. Conservatives want to find ways to get their conservative messages across. People, right. anti-vaxxers want to get their anti-vax message across. Pro-vaxxers want to get their pro-message across. Everyone's trying to advocate for more, to move their agenda forward. And what I'm feeling as a result, sort of partly as a result of our conversation today, but in general is that that's all going to happen and that's all good, especially if it's on the side that you're pushing for. Right. But what we really need are more places where people can really explore issues. And oftentimes we say we're doing that, but what we're really doing is pushing our agenda. So we need to be really honest about creating spaces where we actually are saying, you know what? We don't have all the answers. Sometimes things yeah. are confusing. Absolutely. And sometimes we want to explore issues together. I'm not sure how I feel about a COVID vaccination. I'm right. not sure exactly how I feel about late-term abortions. I'm not exactly sure how I feel about defunding the police. I'm not sure how I feel about reducing incarceration funds. So where can I go for that information? Wouldn't it be cool if we could help people who have those kinds of questions? Uh, no, definitely. Thoughtful. I think, yeah. yeah, this is ultimately kind of where I'm trying to make that space in sort of a sense bringing on different people of different industries, you know, discussing certain ideas, certain potential outcomes, what are the issues that have been addressed or have not. Because I think so much of what we hear and do now these days is kind of preemptively decided for us, if that makes sense. It's kind of like, hey, this is what 
the situation is, uh, this is the outcome. And you're either with it or you're not. And right. I feel there's a lot of people, myself included, who sure may agree with uh, a larger narrative, but also have questions of other things and may not necessarily agree on something mm-hmm. or have a different perspective. And it's just not discussed or mentioned at all. So you're kind of left, where do I go now kind of deal. So yeah, think- there are people There are people that are working in this area a little bit. One is someone I like, try to follow as much as I can. His name is Jonathan Haidt, mm-hmm. H-A-I, I believe it's D-T. And he is uh, now, I believe, affiliated with, and he's a professor at New York University. Oh, and good. he wrote a um, great book called, the subtitle is Why Good People Disagree About Politics and Religion. But let me just see here what the title is, because it's a great book, The Righteous Mind. Uh, it's a course, I, I actually, it's a book I like to have some, some of my students read sometimes, The Righteous Mind. And it, again, explores some of these issues around why people feel one way or the other, very conservative, very liberal, about all these different issues. And they're often, again, tied to very legitimate feelings about the role of tradition in our society versus progressivism and someone who feels more closely to tradition may be more conservative and that may take you down a road that is more sort of labeled as maybe bigoted or closed-minded or whatever and from a pro-progressive person it may be that could take you down a road that's more socialist or whatever but the fundamental values that underpin that are important and Jonathan Haidt's been doing a lot of work around trying to find ways to have these legitimate conversations where people can disagree and in a more trusting and open way. And where you see this a lot, of course, is college campuses. So we didn't really experience this at our graduate school of public health and health policy, but you know, as anybody knows who's been paying attention that over the last few years, well before COVID, it's been called a crisis, you know, in college campuses of communications where a speaker will come, often a right-leaning speaker, and the students will protest and say, that speaker shouldn't be allowed to speak or whatever. Uh, And Jonathan Haidt has been a real defender of those kinds of speakers. I mean, it used to be that anybody was allowed to speak anywhere, but people have been saying that's not happening. And then some people will say, on the other side, very intellectual people say, no, that person doesn't deserve to speak because that's a bigoted point of view. We don't need to hear someone who has leaning against doesn't believe in equal treatment for LGBTQ people or doesn't believe in rights to women to make their own decisions or whatever. So we shouldn't even allow them to talk. I personally believe, and maybe this comes from my position of privilege. I'm very privileged, very comfortable. I mean, a life that's been free of too much (laughs) tension and distress. So it's easy for me maybe to hear people with distasteful perspectives. It doesn't bother me to hear people say horrible things. But for some people, it really does bother them. And it feels like, you know, it's a real wrong thing to allow. And again, this kind of conversation should be discussed and debated. And it's not done in a nice, friendly, open and honest way. Right. So I appreciate this, what you're doing with this podcast. And I would encourage you to do this, to push this sort of this place. Because I know, I feel very strongly that people want this. And not everybody wants it. Many, many people want to just push their perspective. But there, I think a lot of people who feel the way I do, I've been called, all right, I haven't been called it, but I always felt that I, I could be called sort of wishy-washy, right? Like that spineless, you could even call me for saying that I don't have a clear view or a clear opinion. And I do have opinions, but I also feel that 
we should open the space. I, I really do feel tolerant of people's opinions, even if they're very strongly disagree with, because right. we don't allow those opinions to come open up and open. What they're going to do is they're going to go underground or elsewhere, right? behind a password protected conversation that right. nobody can see or in the basement of whether it's a church or anything that's having these conversations or some other place that's talking about how we advance racist policies or whatever they are. I believe that's the result of what happens when we can't have these conversations above ground. Of course. No, well, with that, I, I definitely thank you for joining me and talking about this today. I think, you know, just a conversation like this will really help push the envelope forward, especially as we now enter not only you know dealing with COVID for the, the rest of 2020 or however long it takes, but also as we enter the election cycle too. It is good to have these perspectives and I think it gives other people, including the listeners here today, um, making sure these conversations are happening and these ideas are being discussed. So thank you again for joining yeah. us. And well, Thanks for having me, Pavan. And um, thank you to your listeners for listening. And I hope to speak to you again. Best of luck with everything. And it was really great working with you um, yes. when you were a student at our school. So, of course. So thank touch. you so much and hope you have a great day. All right. You too. Thanks for joining this episode of Global Talks by Pav Life with Pavan Lohia. Make sure to visit pavlife.com, where you can also subscribe to the podcast and read the Pav Life blog. For perspectives and news on everything healthcare, you simply can't get anywhere else. Share your thoughts on the show by rating the show and by connecting with us on social media. Thanks for tuning in. See you in the next episode.